You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. And our first reading comes from Acts 20, verses 33 through 35. You can find that on page 931 of your Pew Bible. And as we love to say every week, please do take one home with you after the service if you do not already have a Bible of your own. Page 930. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word of the Lord. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. Our reading from the gospel today comes from Matthew chapter 5. 1 to 11. You can find that on page 809 and 810 in your pew Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. We are winding down the season in the church calendar called Ordinary Time, uh, which means we are rounding the bend in towards Advent. Um, 
And I know the church calendar is not familiar to all of you. During the season of Advent, we have a number of kind of special things going on. If you haven't picked up an Advent card, um, please pick one up. They're in the lobby right out there. Please grab one before you go. Put it uh, on the dashboard of your car. Put it on your desk at home. Put it on the refrigerator. Someplace where you'll see it frequently and be able to remember that we are entering a new season of the church year and that there are some, some new practices that come along with that. So as we're closing out uh, the fall, we're closing out also our fall sermon series, and we've called this series Paradox Manifesto. It's on the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Beatitudes of Jesus do not follow the logic of this world. They, they, they sound paradoxical to our own ears. And when they're taken together, they form something of a public declaration of the values of the new regime, the new reality inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And thus far, just to kind of catch you up, here's where we've been. We've examined the paradoxes of poverty, and grief, gentleness, appetite, mercy, purity, peace, and persecution. And today we're going to look at what you might call the lost beatitude of Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, uh, which Lane read a few moments ago, the author, Luke, is quoting um, the Apostle Paul. This is this scene that happened uh, in history where the Apostle Paul came and gave not really a full sermon, but like a very brief lecture, maybe a, a small homily, to the elders at the church in Ephesus. And at the very end, to close out his lecture, Paul asked them to remember something that Jesus said. And the tone of voice in the text seems to be kind of alluding to the fact that everybody knew that this was a wise saying of Jesus, something Jesus said frequently. And the quote is, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Evidently, this was something that was well known uh, for, for Jesus to say. And the thing is, we don't have this recorded in any of the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So we might call it the lost beatitude of Jesus. And so we're going to fit it into the series, even though it comes from a different text in a different part of the Bible. I think it fits. As we begin, let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the lost beatitude, the paradox of generosity. I grew up in a family that talked a lot about money. I know that's not everybody's story. Some people grew up in families that never talked about money. Other families talk about money, but only in awkward ways. In the Murata family, talking about money was just normal dinner table conversation. How was practice? How's your Roth IRA? That was just normal, right? Um, I knew how to diversify a portfolio before I knew how to drive, okay? That was just like... And that's a weird thing to confess to you. That's like part of my privilege. It's also part of what makes our family weird, but that's, that's who we are. That's how I grew up. And I have to be careful because I've learned over the years that while talking about money is, just feels normal and natural and easy for me just because I grew up that way and I'm used to it, for a lot of people, they have the, actually the opposite experience. Talking about money is painful or awkward or weird uh, or shameful. And so we have to be careful. I, I've learned I have to be careful about how I talk about money. Um, and a sermon about money is not really something that anybody wants, right? Like nobody walked into church this morning thinking, oh, I hope he preaches about money, right? You didn't, like, if that's you, I want to meet you because you're, you're weird. Um, 
And actually, this is true no matter where you are on the economic spectrum, but the awkwardness is different for you depending on where you are. So if you're, if you're on the wealthier, richer end of the spectrum, then when you find out there's going to be a sermon about money, you're kind of thinking like, am I getting called out here? Is this getting targeted at me? Is the church starting a capital campaign? Is the spotlight on me? Right? Like th- those are the things that might be going through your head. If you're more in the middle class part of the spectrum, then you're kind of thinking like, look, we're just barely making it. Our margins are razor thin as a household. And is this sermon going to make me, is this sermon going to push me to do something that's not actually like financially healthy for our family, right? That's like the middle class fear with sermons about money. And then if you're on like the poor or more impoverished end of the spectrum, this, the sermons like this can just feel tone deaf, right? It can just feel like, doesn't he know how hard like life is in this one particular area? Um, and is there actually anything for me there, right? So no matter where you are on the economic spectrum, sermons about money are just bad news, okay? So let's name that. But there are other reasons why talking about money is hard, especially in the church. That's because money is intimate. There are kind of three big areas of life that are places of relational intimacy, and those places are sex, family, and money. Three areas of relational intimacy. Three things that will kind of like make or break your life. You get those three things right, odds are you're going to have a pretty good life. You get those one, even one of those three things wrong, things are going to be hard, right? And there are three things that I tend to talk about whenever I do premarital counseling with any young couples. It's like there are a lot of things you can talk about in premarital counseling, but I'm going to pick sex, family, and money because those are the big ones. They will make or break your marriage. Now, I want to put out there that these are three things that will also make or break your spiritual life. Sex, family, and money, three things that will make or break your spiritual life. This is why the Bible is constantly talking about money. The Bible has a lot to say from the beginning in the story of creation where all of the world is given to humanity as a gift, a good gift called by the Lord good, to the fall into sin where resources immediately get distorted and misused and abused and used as leverages of oppression over others, to the redemption of resources that we see in Jesus. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be the new humanity, to use resources in redemptive ways, to the glorious picture of the new creation at the very end of the biblical story where all things, including the material resources and goods of this world, are renewed and restored in glory. This is the story the Bible tells about money, about resources. And our text, it's more blessed to give than receive, falls right in the middle of that story. Now, before we go any further, let's just name a couple things that are at stake here um, beyond just our own personal awkwardness, right? Here are a few other things that are at stake. I want to quote a couple times from a former professor of mine. I studied Greek under a professor in seminary named Craig Blomberg, one of the kind of foremost Greek New Testament scholars in the world right now. He's still alive. Um, I email him every once in a while when I need advice. And um, he's one of those people who not only uh, teaches in really wise and shrewd and beautiful ways about the New Testament ethic for using money and using resources, but also someone who personally lives it out. Very humble man. Uh, practicing what he teaches. And for that, for those reasons, he's someone that I look to not only as a teacher, but also a role model when it comes to what it means to live out a Christian ethic when it comes to money. And here are some things that he says. He says, generosity is one of the most important barometers of spiritual maturity. Generosity is exhibit A 
for someone's level of sanctification. Sanctification being how deeply has the Christian life really taken root in your life? How much are you living it out? What one does with material possessions discloses where one's spiritual allegiance lies. He goes on to say, it's no exaggeration to say that money is God's arch competitor for human allegiance. What is at stake with stewardship is one's, his words, not mine, one's very salvation. For perhaps the majority in the American church today, materialism remains the primary barrier to progressing from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Tragically, many Christians have known the Lord for years, even decades. There are Christians who are church leaders. There are Christians who are ordained ministers, but they've never modeled biblical generosity themselves. And so they remain babies in Christ with the most important step in sanctification still lying ahead of them. If I could summarize kind of what he's getting at, I would use the metaphor of both a thermometer and a thermostat. And they both relate to temperature, but in different ways, right? A thermometer measures temperature. It shows where you are. And so in one sense, financial generosity just kind of shows where you are. It shows, it like reveals what is happening inside of you. On the, on the, it reveals on the outside what's spiritually true on the inside. But giving financially is also a thermostat. A thermostat doesn't tell the temperature, it sets the temperature, right? Giving is formative. Giving changes you. It raises or lowers the temperature. It doesn't leave you the same. Giving never leaves you the same. And so the giving and receiving described in this beatitude of Jesus, it's more blessed to give than receive, uh, is, is specifically about money. That's the context of this beatitude. Now, let's be clear. Of course, it's about more than money too, right? You could apply this beatitude. It's more blessed to give than receive to lots of things. You could apply it to time. You could apply it to love. You could apply it to, like, just pick a category. You could apply it. It's true. The things Jesus says tend to be true, right? But here's the thing. It's specifically about money in this context. And so I just want to warn you not to do what I am always tempted to do when I hit something in the Bible that relates to money. I go, this is probably a metaphor for something else. I'm going to focus on that, right? (laughs) So let's just agree together we're not going to chase metaphors. We're just going to go for what it actually says. Sounds good? Okay. It's more blessed to give than receive. This is the paradox of generosity. And as we explore it, we're going to see three blessings that come along with this paradox of generosity. And they are the blessings of contentment, simplicity, and community. And they all come right from the text, from the words of the Apostle Paul here in the book of Acts. First, the blessing of contentment. In verse 33, the Apostle Paul says, quote, I coveted no one's, no one's silver or gold. And what he's naming in the moment is he's doing a little thing where he's talking about money, and he's saying, first, I wasn't jealous of the stuff other people have. You know, jealousy is something of a curse. And the reason is because jealousy steals your joy, right? When your attention and your imagination is focused on what other people have that you don't have, are you happy? You are not, right? As long as I'm looking at what somebody else has, I'll never be happy with what I have, right? Jealousy is the thief of joy. And giving is the tangible act of choosing contentment. Contentment is inner and emotional, right? Like contentment isn't like an object you have. Contentment is a state of being. Yes, this is true. So if contentment is an inner emotional state of being, giving 
is the corresponding outer physical act. Now, whenever you have an outer action and an inner spiritual reality, there's a Christian word for that. And the Christian theological word for that is sacrament. Sacrament is an outer and visible sign of an inner spiritual grace. Therefore, when it comes to the dynamic between financial generosity and inner contentment, we might say giving is a sacrament. It's an outer and visible sign of an inner and spiritual grace. Contentment is fostered as we give. Contentment is the reward. It's the blessing on the other side of generosity. That's the blessing of contentment. The second blessing is the blessing of simplicity. The Apostle Paul goes on in the very next verse, verse 34, to say, these hands, and he's, you can imagine him holding up his own hands in the moment, these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. And that word necessities is so important uh, because all of us have some things in our life that are necessities, right? And then we also have other things that are not necessities, yes? And the difference between necessities and the other things is excess, indulgence, right? Things I have that are not things that I actually need. And here it's appropriate to talk about how, um, and again, I'm not going to put this on you, I'm going to put it on me. It's appropriate for me to talk about at this point how I live with so much clutter. I have so many things in my life, and by things I'm not using a metaphor, I mean actual things, stuff in my life that is actually burdensome. It makes my life complicated and cluttered. And by the way, uh, all, every human being struggles with hoarding a little bit, right? And some of you have seen the TV show Hoarders and like, isn't it fun to sit on your couch and like eat nachos and just laugh at other people and their crazy hoarding tendencies? But here's the thing about hoarding. All of the, all of the hoarders that we love to like laugh at and mock what size is their house? It's pretty small. And that's why the hoarding is so problematic. You know, wealth is a really great way of hiding your hoarding tendency, right? Because you have space so nobody can notice that you just have so much stuff, right? And again, not putting it on you. This is my story. And so my possessions end up owning me. Did anybody read that book that got real hot like 10 years ago called The Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo? Did y'all read that? All of you men in the room are like, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. Yeah, it was on your wife's bedstand and you read it when she wasn't looking. Um, such a fascinating book. Now, the funny thing about Marie Kondo and the magic of tidying up is that she wrote the book when she did not have children. And now she has children and her house is a mess. And every stay-at-home parent is like, ha, I knew it. I knew it was too good to be true, right? So I'm like, wonderful satisfaction in Marie Kondo having a messy house now. But the thing is, whenever something gets really popular, you have to ask yourself, what, what chord have they struck that is causing everybody to resonate with what this person is saying? And the, and the good and right and true chord that Marie Kondo struck was the reality that your stuff ends up kind of owning you. And there's this, I remember this one little story in the book uh, where I read it and I thought, oh my goodness, that is so true. Um, she writes about how people, whether poor, middle-class or rich, everybody loves getting away and staying in a hotel room or an Airbnb or a vacation home 
and they love it and they feel so much more relaxed in those environments because the only things they have with them are what? Their necessities and everything else is not there, right? And you feel this, like you, your anxiety goes down. You feel calmer, more content. Your life is simple when you travel in those ways because you just have what you need and nothing else. And I read that and I thought, my goodness, that is so true. And this is why our homes can be such stressful places, right? And so we're talking about the blessing of contentment. And then the second one is the blessing of simplicity, a simple life of necessity without the excesses and the indulgences, just having what you need. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And whenever the Apostle Paul is talking, he's also referring to our lives too, right? Just the necessities, a simple life, the blessing of a simple life. The blessing number three is, is the one you don't see coming. The first two are expected, right? They obviously have something to do with money and resources and possessions. The third one is a twist, but it might be the most important one of all, the blessing of community. Verse 35, he says, by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Interesting. He connects his hard work, his occupation, and the Apostle Paul was a, a bivocational pastor, part-time pastor, part-time tent maker. He worked with his hands physically, not just typing. He made things. So his work is connected to other people's needs. And he doesn't divorce those things for each other. He doesn't just say, I worked hard and made money and provided for myself. He says, by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, those who are financially in need. In other words, in Paul's imagination, hard work is not for yourself, it's for the benefit of others. Your work is connected to the well-being of other people. In contemporary language, we might say your work is for the common good. You know, Jesus told a parable that really gets at this idea. Jesus told the parable of a farmer who's really successful, and he plants a crop, and rain and sunlight that particular season were just right. It's a huge crop. Everything's great, huge, successful harvest. He can't fit everything he's harvested in his barns, so he tears down the barns and builds bigger ones. And the parable ends pretty dark with God saying to this farmer, like, tonight your life is required of you, and what then? Like, what good are your big barns going to do for you then? And the, like, the point of the parable is what's missing from it, which is the farmer didn't see that his hard work and his success, he was good at farming. Like, no shame there. He was a good farmer. But he didn't see that his hard work and his success was connected to the needs of the community, to other people. And so rather than tearing down his barns and building bigger ones, what should he have done with the excess? It should have been shared. It had something to do with his neighbor, but he didn't see it, and that was the problem. Scott McKnight, an Anglican theologian, puts it this way. He writes, faith cannot be reduced to trust or to creedal orthodoxy. Faith flowers, faith blooms into full-blown acts of mercy towards the poor and the marginalized, or it's not saving faith. And so the idea is that when we are not content and when we don't practice simplicity, and again, I'm not putting this on you, this is just on me, I tend to, here's what I do, I tend to work very hard. Um, we all self-identify as something. I self-identify as a hard worker. I don't know if that's actually objectively true, but I like to think of myself that way, right? Do you like to think of yourself as a hard worker? Of course you do. 100% of people identify as harder working than average, right? Just think about that. Um, 
So I think of myself as a hard worker and I tend to work very hard. And when I work very hard, I tend to keep all the fruit of my work and I fail to see the interconnectedness of my life. And so I end up tearing down, I am gonna get metaphorical for a moment here. I end up tearing down barns and building bigger ones. I just expand what I have and I just have more. And as I have more, my life gets more and more complicated and as my wealth increases and as my life gets more complicated, it leads to isolation. It kills community. The curse of isolation, the curse is, is linked to the curse of excessive wealth. It kills community. So here's a different question to ask along the very same lines. Like, do you want community? And I've never met anybody who's ever said no to that, right? Everybody wants this. But the thing is, if you seek a life, if I seek a life where I don't need anyone for anything, you know what I will have? I will have a life where I don't need anyone for anything. That's a very lonely life. Giving is the antidote. When I give, when we give, we acknowledge that other people need us. And as soon as I encounter the reality that other people need me, or if we encounter the reality that other people need us, then if we're emotionally intelligent and self-aware, we would have to ask the reciprocal question, do I need them, <laughs> right? Let's talk about thick versus thin community for a moment. Thick community develops from mutual need. This is why for many of us, our best experiences of community are in the rear view mirror. Some of you are having the best experience of community you've ever had in your life, and that's great. I'm so happy for you. I hope it lasts. But some of us, our best experience of friendship and community is some season long ago, right? And nine times out of 10, the reason for that is because back there, we used to need people for help. But then we like worked hard and did well, and now we don't need people anymore, and so we're lonely, right? For many of us, our best experiences of community were in sports, because you like needed to be on a team, right? Or in the military, because you had to depend on the men and women around you. Or in college, where you lived together, you couldn't be alone. Or coworkers, before COVID, when you used to go to work, right? <laughs> and before work was on Zoom, you actually needed each other. The lie that Western culture tells about friendship is that friendships are like the icing on the cake. You have necessities and then you have friendships, right? And like first you take care of necessities and then if you have margin and time and the desire, you could sprinkle in a few friendships in there. Instead of realizing that community is what happens when you work and live in a context where you need each other. Now, that's thick community. Thin community simply develops from self-sufficiency. And friendships are only therefore based on affinity. Do we get along? Do we like being around each other? If your friendships are only based on affinity, do you just like being around each other? It's a thin community. And some of you right now are probably wondering, like, I actually don't know what I have. Do I have a thick or a thin community? I'm not sure. Here's the litmus test, okay? Here's the test. If you can drop a friend from your life and your life doesn't change at all, other than just you don't see them anymore, that's thin community. You, didn't need, you don't need each other. There's no need. They're just there. And so if you can add and subtract friends without your life changing, that's, that's thin community. Now, the curse of all of this is that when we fail to give generously, we, we end up living under jealousy 
and excess and isolationist curses. We miss the blessings that come with generosity. We miss the peacefulness of contentment. We miss the freedom of simplicity. We miss the joy of community. And peace and freedom and joy and contentment and simplicity and community, this is the life I want, y'all. This is the good life. That's what I want. But I tend to think that if I had enough money, I can buy these things, right? That actually, if I had more money, I'd have more peace. If I had more money, I'd have more freedom. If I had more money, I'd have more time to spend with friends, more community. And so instead of giving, I tend to work hard and I save and I hoard and I act against my own self-interest and wonder why it doesn't work. Just consider with me for a moment the kind of contentment and simplicity and community that Jesus' life had. Jesus lived a content life. This is inarguable. You don't even have to believe Jesus is real to read the gospel accounts and see. This character in the story is living a content life. You never see him jealous of what other people have. He's never trying to advance from one place of status to another. Jesus also lived a simple life. Again, you don't even have to believe he's real to notice that that character in the story is living a simple life. A few necessities, nothing more. Not poor, but not rich either. Jesus lived a communal life always with people, often needing things from other people. And this is where, just use your imagination, if you are divine, wouldn't that mean you don't need anything? And yet, the life that Jesus lived as the divine Son of God was a life of needing things from other people, needing help, needing money, needing support. How did he do this? Well, the temptation is to think that Jesus did all of these things because he was God, but I think we've got it the wrong way around. No, Jesus lived this way. He lived with contentment and simplicity and community because he lived a life of giving. The contentment and simplicity and community that Jesus was blessed with was downstream from the life of giving that he was living, his life of generosity. Think about the generosity of Jesus. Think about him healing people, giving the gift of health to others. Think about him giving food to people. Think about all the food miracles, from the wedding at Cana to the feeding of the 5,000 and everything in between. Jesus is putting food into hungry bellies. And it's really tempting, if you've been a Christian for a while and have been in church, to say at this point, like, uh, Dan, I see I caught you in a logical inconsistency there because Jesus was only able to do those miracles because he was divine. Okay, what about time? Think about how Jesus gave away his time. Jesus has the same 24-hour day that you and I have. And I think it's fair to say that the stuff he was doing is more important than the stuff I'm doing, right? And yet he allowed himself to be interrupted and imposed upon on a regular basis. And I get pretty grumpy when somebody interrupts me. What about money? Did Jesus and the disciples give away money? You know, there's this story in the gospel accounts about a woman who goes to Jesus and she breaks this jar of expensive perfume and she uses it to anoint Jesus' feet. And one of the disciples grumbles about this, sort of muttering under his breath. Uh, It's Judas, true to form. Uh, And Judas grumbles and says the perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And there's something active and passive happening in the story. The active part of the story is the point Jesus is making, which is it's not It's not wrong, it's not inappropriate to give lavishly and excessively to God. That's the main idea in the story. But there's a secondary passive thing that you can draw out of the story, which is it was normal for Jesus and the disciples to give money to the poor. Why else would Judas think that? It was a normal thing they did. 
Jesus lived a life of giving. But here's the kicker. Jesus not only modeled a life of giving, he actually became a gift. Jesus became a gift. On the cross, Jesus offers his whole self. And whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe that the crucifixion of Jesus accomplished anything or not, you have to acknowledge what Jesus thought he was doing. He thought he was offering his body as a sacrifice for other people. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he took wine and he poured it out. And he gave these this bread and wine to the disciples as this symbolic practice that demonstrated that his life was a gift, a gift that they were to receive. And he gave it to them not only as a gift for them to receive, but also as a gift for them to embody and to give as well, that their lives were to be broken like bread, that their lives were to be poured out like wine and ours as well. Because the corresponding action to receiving is always giving, right? These two can't be separated from each other. If you look at the cover art on the front cover of your liturgy, you'll see a pair of hands that have been sketched. And if you look at the title of the image, it says the giving life. But isn't it interesting that you wouldn't have been surprised if the title was actually the opposite, the receiving life, right? Isn't it interesting that this posture right here is both a posture of receiving and also a posture of giving? This is the posture of the Christian life in both ways. A posture of receiving the gift of Jesus. Also a posture of giving and offering yourself as a gift to others. We see this exemplified in the life of Zacchaeus. The Zacchaeus story gets a total bad rap. Everyone, what do you know Zacchaeus for? He's short, right? Like, poor guy. Like, that's what he's famous for? Zacchaeus is the villain who becomes the benefactor. Zacchaeus is the leech on society who's like the payday loan guy, you know, shark down the street. He's just like preying on the poor. And then he encounters Jesus. And after encountering Jesus, the very first thing that happens is he starts giving his money away. He gives away half of what he has. Then he pays back four times what he's stolen from other people. In other words, the conversion in Zacchaeus' life went so deep that money was impacted and giving and generosity became his response to his encounter with the grace and mercy and beauty and goodness of Jesus. And I think it's totally fascinating that when Zacchaeus makes this declaration that he's giving not all of his money, but a lot of it away, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, salvation has come to this household. And I think it would be reasonable to assume that if Zacchaeus had not given any money away, that Jesus would not have said, salvation has come to this household. What if Zacchaeus had had lunch with Jesus and just said, Jesus, this has been great. You're so kind, so much nicer than I thought you were going to be. I just love that you love me. I receive your love. I receive your grace. I receive your mercy. Love being a part of the family of God. This is great. Um, All right, we're done, right? (laughs) The conversion was not complete until there was both a receiving and a giving. And for many of us, we are half converted. We've received. And our hands are like this, but we've not yet begun to give. And so... We're kind of only halfway through the story. 
We're heading into the holiday season. The holiday season is a season of giving and receiving gifts. And I know that you all already know this in most other areas of life, right? Like, are you more excited to receive gifts or to give gifts? And because I know you and I know how generous all of you are, like you're, you're mostly more excited to give gifts, aren't you? It's a good thing. No shame in that. That's great. But take what you've learned in that area of life. Take what you've learned under the Christmas tree and apply it to your spiritual life. So here's some practices just to kind of get us going in this direction as we head into the holiday season. Practice number one would be to take an, is a practice of contentment. A practice of contentment begins with taking an inventory of your resources. This will help foster contentment. Uh, but it's actually pretty disturbing when you first do it, okay? Excuse me. And when I say take an inventory of your resources, I mean, see if you can do this, okay? See if you can walk around your home and write down everything you own. That will take a while, won't it? <laughs> right? Whether you're poor or rich, it's going to be a long list. And I did a, a very small version of this this morning before I left the house. I just counted all of the shoes I have. Okay? That's embarrassing. Ready for a little public humiliation? Okay? I have 12 pairs of shoes. Does anybody need 12 pairs of shoes? They do not. So I need to give away some shoes. Yeah? Now, I would say I don't even need to tell you to give some of your things away. All you have to do is make a list of all the things you have and you will figure the rest out on your own, right? If you actually make a list of everything you have, I guarantee you'll give some of it away, right? Make, take an inventory, practice of contentment. Next is a practice of simplicity. You need a vision for a financially simple life focused on necessities. And one of the things, one of the just unique privileges that I get to have as a pastor here is I get to have, I get to go visit your homes. I get to go be with in many of you in your homes. And I get to see what your normal is, right? And one of the great joys of that is I get to see like just the incredible economic diversity of our parish. Some of you live in like very small, simple homes. Some of you live in like very big, beautiful homes. And there's no shame on either side of that, right? The goal here is not communism. We're not trying to make everybody the same. Sameness is not the goal. But simplicity is the goal. And I get to see what normal is for you. And then, and then our family gets to invite some of you into our house. And that's always a little bit embarrassing, right? So it's super embarrassing to invite people over because you get to come see what my normal is, right? And I always feel pretty weird about that. But our normals are not all the same what a gift it is to allow other people to speak into your normal, to encounter someone else's normal, and in doing so, figure out what do they call a necessity? What do I call a necessity? Do we agree on what that is? Let's talk about it. Invite other people into your normal. Let them speak into your normal. That's a practice of simplicity. Uh, uh, another practice would be a practice of community, and it would go something like this. Begin to restructure your life so that you need other people. Now, some of you are already there and you're already doing this so well. No need to change, just keep going. But some of you live pretty independent lives where you just don't need any help from anybody. And when you do that, you don't need any help from anybody and so you're pretty lonely, right? So restructure your life so you need other people. Exchange favors and services rather than using your resources to create independence. It's a really small thing that our family did along these lines recently. And it's a great story of my wife, Rachel, being right and me being wrong. Okay, so uh, about a month and a half ago, I took the family camping, okay? All six of us stayed in one tent for a night. We are very brave. <laughs> uh, it went great. It was fun. Um, 
here's the thing. My, everyone has their thing that they love spending money on that they can never have enough of. And for you, it might be a car or a technology or a flat screen TV. I don't care about any of that. My thing is outdoor gear. I can never have too much outdoor gear. And this might be the whitest thing you ever hear me say, but I kind of want to live at REI. Like if they would let me just stay in the store at night just to be around the gear, that's, that's my dream world. It's very weird, and you can make fun of me for it if you want, but that's my thing. So getting ready to take the family camping, what did I want to do? I wanted to go to REI, and I wanted to buy all the gear, even if we never use it. I just want to have it, right? I want to have all the gear. And my very wise and patient wife said, what if we borrowed it <laughs> since we're just trying this out, family camping for the first time? And she was right. And so I went down the street to a neighbor's house, and I knew they had some gear, and I borrowed it. And the, the trip was great, and our, you know, we like, talked with our kids about taking good care of the stuff because it wasn't ours, and all of that went just fine. But here's the community implication of borrowing instead of buying. I spent time in that family's basement kind of picking out stuff to borrow and hearing their stories of their family camping trips. And then while we were camping, I had this emotional experience of being grateful for them. And then when we got home, I had to like return all the stuff and then tell them the stories of our trip. And our families got just a little bit closer, just a little bit more community, just a little bit more intimate with each other because we borrowed instead of bought. It's a small, very silly example. You don't have to like camping to like that example, right? Like just, but think about how might you restructure your life so that you need other people and are just a little bit more dependent on each other. So where do you start? Which one of these practices do you do first? Actually, none of them. The practice you do first is you start with giving. You see, my tendency, and again, I'm not putting it on you, it's on me. My tendency is to first practice contentment, then practice simplicity, then practice community, see how it goes, and if I'm happy enough and I feel like I have extra, then I will give. And I will be right back where I am right now. Instead, the first practice for me is to start giving and let my giving create the contentment. Let my giving create the simplicity and let my giving help foster and create the community. All of these blessings are downstream from generosity. Can we give 3% more than we give right now? Or maybe five or maybe one. For some of you, it would be a colossal act of faith to give $100 more each month. That would be huge for you. It would feel risky and scary, and it would take tremendous faith in God's provision to give $100 more each month. For others of you who are in a different economic situation, it would not impact your lifestyle at all to multiply your giving by a factor of 10, right? It wouldn't change anything. We're all in different places on this, and so it's really important for everyone to know that there isn't like a particular number in mind here. There's no target. There's no financial target here. And this is not an invitation to raise Redeemer's budget. And I hope the vestry and the finance team are okay with me saying this, but the budget's just fine. Like Redeemer doesn't need more giving to do more things right now. If there's more giving, then there will be more things that we do. But that's actually not what this is about. The invitation here is the invitation to the paradox of generosity. That's the invitation on the table. Look, for those of you that are members, there may very well be a day 
where we have a capital campaign as a church and where I stand up here and I ask you and, you know, like call you to give a particular amount of money to a particular cause. That might happen in the life of our church at some point in the future. But that's not today. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about the invitation to the paradox of generosity. To foster the peace of contentment and the freedom of simplicity and the joy of community. The life that we want, right? On the other side of giving. On the other side of giving in the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you first have given so much to us. Help our hands to be open to receive all of the gifts that you have given to us. And would you help our hands to stay open so that we can continue to give and maybe even give more of what you have so generously bestowed upon us. This we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.